Hello, and welcome to Checkpoint Now, the podcast at the intersection of immunotherapy and toxicities. This is your host, Dr. Freen Sharif, endocrinologist, assistant professor of medicine, and an associate director at the Center of Cancer Immunotherapy at Duke Cancer Institute. I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Tian Zhang. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Tian Zhang, GU medical oncologist and associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center, Simmons Comprehensive Cancer Center. Before we begin today's discussion, just a reminder that the content discussed in this podcast is not a substitute for direct professional medical care and diagnosis. The opinions expressed here represent our own. We have joining us today guest experts from Mass General Hospital. Joining us today is Dr. Carrie Reynolds, Dr. Mada Gidon, and Dr. Leon Burton. We're very excited to have you all in the podcast today. Carrie, thanks for joining us again. We always love having you on the podcast. And for our audience joining in today, can you share a little bit about yourself and your expertise? Thank you, Efrain and Tian. It's great to be here again today on Checkpoint Now. I still feel so lucky to be living in Boston and working as an oncologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. It's hard to believe that it's been four years now. It was really four years ago, 2017, when we started seeing an increasing number of patients admitted to our hospital with severe immunotherapy complications, second to checkpoint inhibitors. So we at MGH decided to take a different approach and really alter our clinical practice model and create the severe immunotherapy complication service, which we call the SICK service. Our goal was really to provide expert level multidisciplinary care for these patients. We brought together faculty from over 19 departments and divisions in the institution, and it was several disease centers within the cancer center, so melanoma, lung, GI, head and neck, and so on. In addition to the other colleagues from neurology, two of which you'll meet today, dermatology, GI, pulmonary, cardiology, and the list goes on. And since October 2017, we have been involved in the care of every patient admitted with a suspected immune-related adverse event. And it's such an incredible group. We stand in solidarity as a highly specialized team. So we meet together on a very regular basis. We see patients together and we have worked tirelessly to develop expertise in the clinical recognition of these atypical presentations and importantly in the management of immune-related adverse events. In addition to the clinical care, the group's primary research focus is to characterize and define these immune-related adverse event clinical presentations and to collect blood and tissue to understand the blueprint of the cells or the molecules that are driving these presentations. And ultimately, our main goal is to develop new therapeutics to improve the treatment of this unique patient population. We're just glad to be here and look forward to telling you more about it today. Welcome again, Carrie. It's such a delight to have you core with us, and it's great to hear um, to have also two of your sick colleagues joining us today as well. Amanda, our audience would love to hear about you and your expertise in neurology. Absolutely. Thank you, Afreen, Tian, and Carrie. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I actually came to this work a bit by chance in 2014, about a year after I joined the neurology faculty at MGH. As a neuromuscular neurologist who focuses on immune-mediated disorders, I started seeing patients with neurotoxicity clinically and then focusing the, developing a focused interest in my clinic. I was really fascinated by the varied presentation of these disorders and how they were similar and different compared to the same disorders without ICIs on board. 
I really love the challenge of taking care of severe autoimmune disease in the setting of cancer and the team effort that's required. The dedication of the patients and their oncologists to treating the toxicity optimally to maximize anti-cancer therapy, always treating in line with the patient's goals of care, was really a model. When we work in autoimmune disease, patients commonly ask, why did I get this disorder? What triggered it? It's really interesting because in ICI neurotoxicity, we actually know a trigger and a time of onset pretty precisely. This is a remarkable opportunity to study mechanism both of toxicity and idiopathic disease. And finally, I typically work in the realm of rare disease in myasthenia gravis specifically. And to move back and forth between common disorders and rare disease has been fascinating. My research focuses on healthcare innovation and health services research, including digital health and telemedicine. And I think the disease definitions, which we'll share more about today for the neurologic toxicities, are really the foundation of future work in this area in neuro IRAEs. It's been such a pleasure to work with Carrie and the Sixth Service and to build the neuro team with additional expertise over the years at MGH from our colleagues, Dr. James Hillis and Dr. Bart Qualish and Dr. Leanne Burton. Well, that's a wonderful story, Amanda, and thanks for sharing your journey with us, Leanne Burton. Uh, Leanne, can you share with us your expertise um, and your interest with our audience? Of course, and thanks so much for the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners today. I'm a neuromuscular neurologist and see a wide range of patients, but I have a particular interest in immune-mediated neuromuscular disorders, including myasthenia gravis and inflammatory myopathies. My research interests include translational work on disease mechanisms, clinical outcome measure development, and trials of novel therapeutics. I trained very closely with Amanda during my fellowship, and as I went through my clinical training, I began to see more and more patients with checkpoint-related neurotoxicity. These disorders were just emerging at the time, and I was struck by the fact that we knew so little about them. There are so many complex issues that arise in these cases, ranging from diagnostic uncertainty to the optimal management of both toxicity and the underlying cancer. And I felt at times that we were poorly equipped to manage some of these clinical dilemmas. So my interest in the field of neurotoxicity really grew from that place of wanting to learn more to improve patient care. I think the neurologic uh, immune-related adverse event disease definitions are a critical step on this path, and so I'm really excited to talk more about them today. Wonderful. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, we plan to discuss all things neurotoxicities from immune checkpoint inhibitors, and this is truly a great group with um, a ton of expertise. We have one oncologist and two expert neurologists here today. Carrie, let's start with you. Can you tell us how often neurotoxicities are encountered following treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors? And this is such an important question. It's incredible. Now there are eight immune checkpoint inhibitors that are FDA approved, and it's hard to believe, but it's estimated that we're going to treat over 233,000 patients with even standard of care therapy, and that doesn't count the thousands of patients in clinical trials. So the incidence of neurological immune-related adverse events in the literature ranges anywhere from 1% to 12%. We see that the peripheral nervous system is affected twice as commonly as the central nervous system. And if we think about it, if the range is from 1% to 12%, that is anywhere from 2,300 to 27,000 new cases of neuroimmune-related adverse events that we can expect this year in our country alone. 
I will say on the inpatient side, I often see patients with serious central nervous system presentations, such as encephalitis, or neuromuscular conditions, such as myasthenia gravis, which we know can overlap with myocarditis and myositis. I'll let Amanda and Leanne discuss more, but it's likely that we could even be underestimating the incidence of these conditions, given that the diagnosis can be so challenging to make. We are thankful and lucky to have experts in neurology, but, the, um, but for these type of cases, it takes a multidisciplinary approach. And at our own institution, the oncology patient is either referred in through the clinic, through the emergency room, or can be transferred or even blown in sometimes from an outside hospital. And the oncologist rounding on the sick service will see that individual. We assess for all immune-related adverse events and complications. And then we loop in the ward neurology service as well as Amanda, Leanne, and their team to ensure we have the proper workup and management. Wow, that's an interesting and amazing setup, Carrie. Um, now, since we're talking about incidences and how common these diseases are with um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, is there really a difference between occurrences between patients who are treated with CTLA-4 inhibitors versus PD-1 and PDL one inhibitors? This is a good question. So much of our current knowledge base is coming from case reports and small series, and there's really a lack of systematic data collection. Amanda and Leanne will expand upon this further. But in the reports to date, any of the neurotoxicities can occur following each of the drug classes, but there are a few differences. Anti-PD-1 and anti-PDL1 are more frequently associated with the myasthenia, myositis, and encephalitis phenotypes, whereas anti-CTLA-4 or combination therapy are more frequently associated with other toxicities. With that said, a true systematic approach to collecting these cases and to collecting them according to rigorous definitions that parse out these phenotypes is key. That's really insightful and very helpful, Carrie. Um, Amanda, you as an expert neurologist have seen um, many challenging cases. Can you share with us one such case? Absolutely. Um, I'd, I'd like to share two examples of a similar presentation and that have actually been challenging in different ways. Um, the first patient was an 82-year-old man with metastatic lung cancer who initially presented to attention because of um, an elevated AST and ALT with falls and dysphagia after cycle two of pembrolizumab. His weakness progressed rapidly over several days. He then developed severe dysarthria, dysphagia, neck weakness, proximal limb weakness, and respiratory failure. Um, when he was admitted, his um, CPK was elevated at over 2,700, and his troponin was also abnormally elevated. I initially saw him when I performed an inpatient EMG, and the, in, the EMG showed evidence for a myopathic process, and repetitive nerve stimulation studies showed decrement characteristic of myasthenia gravis. Myasthenia antibodies, um, acetylcholine receptor ant binding antibodies and musk antibodies were subsequently negative. His diagnosis um, based on his presentation and the data was immune-related myopathy overlapping with immune-related myositis and immune-related myocarditis due to some additional cardiac workup that was performed. We treated him um, early in his hospital course with hydrosoyimedrol and IVIG. And he improved slightly, but, but not enough to prevent an aspiration event. And unfortunately, he had respiratory failure. 
Um, it was a very challenging situation um, because his his code status was uh, well established as DNR DNI, and he declined intubation. And with his very fulminant case of um, this toxicity, he unfortunately died um, in the intensive care unit on hospital day three. And I talk about this, this patient because it really highlights um, a couple different teaching points. One is how elevated AST and ALT or, or liver enzymes can actually reflect muscle breakdown and not liver pathology. Um, checking a GGT and a CPK can help distinguish abnormal muscle from ab liver abnormalities. And then second, um, dysphagia and neck weakness, um, which patients you know, might not report as a neurologic problem, are often a precursor to respiratory failure. And rapid intervention with high-dose solumedrol is needed. However, when, when solumedrol and another rapid-acting therapy like IVIG don't work, we really don't have another drug to turn to at this point. And this is really the most fulminant example of this combination immune-related myopathy, myasthenia, myocarditis overlap. That's really an uh, incredible uh, and um, fulminant um, example. Um, what would a more mild neurologic presentation look like? Absolutely. So, you know, on the flip side, you know, I cared for another patient um, who was 72 years old um, with melanoma, who'd been treated with one cycle of adjuvant pembrolizumab. At that point, he presented to his outpatient oncologist with several days of droopy eyelids, blurred vision, and neck heaviness, as he described it. And upon hearing his story, I initially suggested checking antibodies for myasthenia, which were subsequently negative, and a CPK, and then saw him in my clinic the next day. Uh, when I saw him on exam, um, I, he had ptosis, um, diplopia with restricted extraocular motility, and neck and proximal limb weakness. His CPK had come back at over 5,000. Um, we performed electrodiagnostic studies and his needle EMG studies were normal. Um, his troponin T was markedly elevated at 280 and then continued to climb. His troponin I was abnormal. He was admitted from clinic and his uh, cardiac MRI was inconclusive, but then he subsequently had an endomyocardial biopsy which showed moderate to high-grade myocarditis um, with an inflammatory infiltrate of CD3 and CD8 T-cells and some CD68 macrophages. Interestingly, um, his ocular symptoms and his neck weakness improved very rapidly with steroids. He was given cyumedrol because of his myocarditis overlap. Um, and his diagnosis was immune-related myopathy without evidence for myasthenia. Um, and his neurologic presentation was readily treated, but his myocarditis was quite difficult to control. Um, he received second-line immunosuppressive therapies and months of high-dose steroids. And he was, um, he was asymptomatic the entire time from a cardiac standpoint. But he, with the treatment, he remained without serious cardiac events. And so I mentioned, I discussed the second patient because he really highlights how the neurologic immune-related adverse events can sometimes be mild and easily treated, uh, but when they overlap can be a clue to a more serious concurrent immune-related adverse event, which could be fatal if not recognized and treated early. And then also having the sick infrastructure in place in our institution for quick referral 
and triage was really key in early diagnosis and treatment. Wow, these are very interesting cases, Amanda, and thanks for sharing them. Um, especially the level of detail really helps distinguish the two very similar but very different presentations. Now, what should oncologists be thinking about when evaluating neurological symptoms in patients on immune checkpoint inhibitors? Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, considering neurologic toxicities is, is important, particularly for atypical symptoms like ocular symptoms or dysphagia or shortness of breath or head drop or myalgias. These are all presentations that are common in neurologic toxicities, which may be thought to be multifactorial in cancer patients or, or otherwise. And so considering neurologic toxicities in these cases is, is really important. Um, and in terms of a systematic approach, um, in our paper in The Oncologist from 2018, Carrie and I outlined a flowchart um, as a suggestion for the stepwise evaluation of patients and these different considerations. And first, it's, it's key to understand whether patients have baseline neurologic problems before starting immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, particularly autoimmune neuromuscular diseases. Patients may also have metastatic disease, which causes neurologic deficits, or have received neurotoxic chemotherapies. Patients should have baseline CBKs and troponin sent before ICIs, and then Thinking about timing is important. New neurologic symptoms within 12 weeks of starting an ICI raises highest suspicion, but up to one year is, is fair game for diagnosis. And then third, thinking about overlapping symptoms. So if patients have one neurologic toxicity screening for others and toxicities affecting different organ systems overlap and some like myopathy, myasthenia, and myocarditis commonly go together. These are such insightful um, comments and uh, discussions about these neuromuscular disorders um, uh, and and how we should be thinking about um, patients when they present. Um, when is imaging helpful in these cases? Well, you know, imaging is helpful in many cases. First, it's important to localize where the problem is, though, um, from history and physical examination to really focus imaging on that area. In peripheral cases, we typically need to exclude metastatic disease as an explanation for symptoms. And so spinal MRI with contrast is often obtained. If that MRI can be focused to a region of the spine, it's going to be higher yield. Uh, we, depending on the toxicity, we can see imaging changes consistent with myelitis and sometimes nerve root enhancement with polyradiculoneuropathy um, or muscle signal changes in myositis. Paraspinal muscle changes and myositis are an underrecognized imaging abnormality. I think it's important to remember, though, that imaging findings may be absent or nonspecific in toxicity. And in my experience, imaging really holds the key to diagnosis less frequently than electrodiagnostic studies in peripheral disorders. So often it's used to exclude other etiologies rather than to rule in the diagnosis. This is very helpful, Amanda. Now, you had talked a little bit about this in your previous answer, hinting towards uh, pre-existing neurological conditions. Um, I just wanted to elaborate and ask you to elaborate a little bit more on this, um, especially regarding the long-term prognosis in these patients, and what should be considered before rechallenging um, such patients with immune checkpoint inhibitors again? 
Yeah, these are, are really great questions. And we don't have a lot of data to, um, at this point, um, to, let me start over again. Um, these are great questions. Um, you know, I think our two cases uh, really illustrate that the long-term prognosis is highly variable and data are really limited. Um, in small series, about a third of patients reach complete resolution, about a third have residual disability, and about a third, uh, unfortunately, um, have death from their toxicities. Um, patients sometimes but infrequently have residual autoimmune neurologic disorders requiring treatment, but that's, that's a lot less common in our experience. Um, as our experience have, has grown, we retreat more patients with ICI therapy, even after severe immune-related adverse events, as long as the potential anti-cancer benefit is high and other choices are limited. This obviously occurs after much consultation and discussion with, with the patient and the oncologist. Um, and typically we would wait until resolution of the immune-related adverse event um, and try to have the patient wean down to a low dose of prednisone um, before um, undergoing ICI reinitiation. Um, you know, there's been ongoing interest in the possibility of targeted IRAE treatment for prophylaxis against recurrence while undergoing ICI retreatment. Um, but this is, is not widely done and it hasn't been studied to date. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing those wonderful and um, amazing learning cases, Amanda. Um, I'm going to switch my questions a little bit to Leanne. Um, so Leanne, as a neurologist, you've probably seen many intriguing cases. Since Amanda shared a case involving the peripheral uh, nervous system, would you like to share one that involved the central nervous system? Sure. There's one particular case that has really shaped my thinking a lot around central nervous system neurotoxicity which can really vary a lot in presentation and include syndromes like encephalitis, meningitis, demyelinating disease, and vasculitis. So this particular case was a woman in her 80s who had metastatic squamous cell lung cancer. She was treated with pembrolizumab and initially had a great treatment response. However, five months into treatment, she developed new brain metastases and underwent stereotactic radiosurgery to the left parietal lobe, which is where the largest of these lesions was. A month later, she was admitted to our hospital with altered mental status that was characterized by fluctuating wakefulness, limited speech output, and difficulty following commands. The most challenging part of this case was working through a really broad differential diagnosis, which in addition to immune-related encephalitis included things like infection, seizure, progression of her intracranial disease, and effects of radiation. She had an extensive workup, which was most notable for vasogenic cerebral edema near the radiation field on MRI, a lumbar puncture that showed a lymphocytic pleocytosis, and a positive PCA2 autoantibody in both serum and CSF. This particular autoantibody can be seen in perineoplastic disease, but didn't strictly match her presentation. She initially did improve with high-dose steroids, but went on to have progressive decline and unfortunately passed away several months later. I ultimately think her cognitive symptoms were multifactorial from a combination of things, including ICI-related encephalitis, radiation-induced cerebral edema, and toxic metabolic encephalopathy. 
But for me, this case really illustrates how challenging it can be to diagnose immune-related encephalitis, particularly in patients with intracranial involvement of their cancer. And the clinical presentation and diagnostic test findings in immune-related encephalitis can overlap very closely with other conditions that commonly occur in this patient population. So it can be really challenging clinically. Thanks, Leanne. You've really outlined and illustrated for us the overlap of both toxicities related to treatment as well as uh, central nervous system involvement um, from cancer, um, which is really difficult to tease out. Um, What clinical findings were most reliable in differentiating these cases? That's a really great question. As Amanda mentioned, the presence of immune-related adverse events affecting other organ systems and the timing after ICI treatment can be good clues to think about a neurologic toxicity in patients with new neurologic symptoms. Unfortunately, there's a lot of overlap between the diagnostic test results in patients with immune-related encephalitis and intracranial metastases, but there are some tests that can help us tease this out. Elevations in circulating inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP can increase our pretest probability for a neurologic immune-related adverse event, but of course these tests are not specific. Lumbar puncture is also helpful. Most patients with immune-related encephalitis will have elevations in CSF protein and the CSF pleocytosis, but this is not entirely specific. The presence of oligoclonal bands or autoantibodies in the CSF are more specific findings and wouldn't be expected in patients with altered mental status that's a result of tumor progression or pseudoprogression. However, the sensitivity of these tests is poor. So the identification of sensitive disease-specific biomarkers would be hugely beneficial in these challenging cases, and some of this work is currently underway. This is going to be very helpful to our audience, Leanne. Now, can you elaborate a little bit on how imaging can be useful in um, identifying these cases? Imaging, specifically an MRI of the brain, can be very helpful in these cases. Based on published cohorts, imaging is abnormal in about 50% of patients with immune-related encephalitis. The most common finding is T2 flare hyperintensity, specifically when it occurs in the mesial temporal lobes or basal ganglia, although patients can have abnormalities in other brain regions as well. These findings, when present, are suggestive of immune-related encephalitis if the clinical context matches. However, metastatic intracranial disease needs to be ruled out as an alternative cause of radiographic abnormalities. That's really helpful, Leanne. Um, What is the long-term prognosis in these patients, and what should be considered before re-challenging such patients with immune checkpoint inhibitors? Similar to the peripheral nervous system presentations that Amanda described, the long-term prognosis is really quite variable. For immune-related encephalitis specifically, based on available retrospective cohorts, about 65% of patients have partial or full improvement with immunosuppressive therapy. However, this data is limited because the way cases are defined across different patient cohorts varies a lot, which is why disease definitions are so critical for moving research forward. In thinking about neurologic recovery from central nervous system toxicity, I think there are two major points to consider. The first is whether any structural injury to the brain has occurred. So for example, immune checkpoint inhibitors can cause central nervous system vasculitis, which causes stroke. So patients who have stroke can improve over time, but stroke does cause lasting ischemic damage to the brain that may not be entirely reversible. The second point to consider is regarding neurologic baseline. As with all neurologic injury, the prognosis tends to be better in patients without underlying structural abnormalities in the brain such as metastasis or prior brain. 
it does not preclude recovery. The question about rechallenge is always difficult and needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis, I think, in collaboration with the patient's oncology team. Um, the severity of prior neurotoxicity is always something that we take into consideration when weighing this. Though, as Amanda mentioned, a severe immune-related adverse event doesn't necessarily preclude retreatment in all circumstances. For patients who are rechallenged, our approach is to optimally, optimally control neurologic symptoms prior to retreatment and to monitor very closely for any symptom reemergence. Prior to retreatment, patients should have a baseline neurologic exam and baseline diagnostic testing, such as MRI of the brain in patients who have had immune-related encephalitis, um, so that we can more accurately evaluate progression if symptoms change over time. Thanks, Leanne. This was very insightful, and thanks for sharing this case. Um, Carrie, can you chime in with a pearl or two about these two cases that um, were shared by Amanda and Leanne? Clinical pearls. Well, I guess I would say we have to be aware of toxicity. And then secondly, if you see one, look for others. So the thought of multiple toxicity rings as a true pearl. And then two, Amanda and Leanne have definitely taught me about the neuromuscular junction conditions. And so anytime I see patients with myocarditis, myositis, or just fatigue or not eating well, I really go through the full gamut of, of possibilities. And I think about asking about diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia, shortness of breath, and neck weakness. And I consider a bedside pulmonary function test in the hospital if I need to, to get a NIF or a FDC in order to make sure that there is no concern for a neuromuscular junction condition. And then three, I would just say that we are always humbled by the lack of diagnostics and the number of individuals with this broad deferential. It really feels like it's so critical to have disease-specific experts such as Amanda and Leanne where we can see these cases and work together. And there's a ton of work to do because it's key that we continue to define these conditions to develop diagnostics and better treatments. And the team's work in this arena has really moved the needle. Amanda and Leanne, along with Bart Qualish and James Hillis, just led a monumental effort. Amanda, do you want to walk through what that process was like and the main framework for how we think about these conditions moving forward? Sure. Um, thanks, Carrie. So um, the consensus definition process started in 2018. Um, at that time, the idea had been hatched, uh, but we needed to assemble the team and support. And so fast forward uh, several steps to 2020, and we joined with local colleagues with additional expertise and a national panel. Um, we really wanted to make the process as streamlined as possible from the beginning for all involved. Um, and the group of four MGH neurologists who were mentioned earlier and Carrie bringing her oncology expertise um, drafted the complete framework for diagnosis, designation of all the disease, subtype, disease types and subtypes, the criteria for diagnosis and the severity criteria. Our small group revised this iteratively for a couple of months back and forth. And then when we were satisfied with that, we put our draft of the definitions through the Delphi consensus process for modifications, really focusing on accuracy and usability. We surveyed the perceptions of the high level of need for the definitions, which are also included in the, in the resulting manuscript. And so the goal was to make the diagnostic framework usable for everyone from oncologists to subspecialty neurologists. And so it starts with two big divisions. 
just whether the uh, immune-related adverse event is a central nervous system or peripheral nervous system toxicity. And then we defined all the events into one of four CNS categories or three PNS or peripheral nervous system categories. The four central nervous system categories um, are meningitis, encephalitis, demyelinating disease, and vasculitis. And the three peripheral nervous system subtypes are neuropathy, neuromuscular junction disorder, and myopathy. And then each disorder and each level of diagnostic certainty is described in the paper. Um, and uh, to assign a classification, there are six, a different six uh, additional descriptors. Syndrome subtype, like Guillain-Barre syndrome, myasthenia gravis, encephalitis, et cetera. Disease exacerbation or de novo presentation. Number three is severity grade. Number four, antibody association. Number five is concurrent neurologic or non-neurologic immune-related adverse event. And number six is level of diagnostic certainty. Well, that's some path-breaking work from your group, Amanda. I've been working with the Delphi Consensus Group for Derm Toxicities with Carrie and learned that this was first initiated for neurotoxicities, just like you mentioned. Uh, Leanne, can you share how this process works? Absolutely. The Delphi method is a systematic process to drive consensus across a group of experts, and it's been used previously to create guidance statements in other neurologic and oncologic settings. In a Delphi process, a panel of experts provides structured, independent feedback on a topic over multiple iterations. We felt this was an ideal method to construct and validate our disease definitions for neurologic related adverse events because the gaps in the data really necessitated that we rely on expert opinion. And also this process allowed us to involve stakeholders across multiple different specialties. So we invited neurologists, oncologists, and other immune-related adverse event specialists from across the country to participate in the Delphi process. I'll briefly outline how this worked for us in practice. So once we had drafted the initial disease definitions that Amanda mentioned, our panel of Delphi participants rated the specific components of the definitions based on accuracy, appropriateness, and usability. Participants also provided free text comments on any areas that needed to be revised. After this first round of voting, we used pre-specified criteria to determine which statements were acceptable and which had reached consensus. For items not meeting these criteria, we made revisions based on the incredibly helpful free text comments that the participants provided. We also had a virtual meeting that participants attended so that we could discuss controversial areas as a group, which further informed some of our revisions. So the revised definitions were sent out for round two of voting, and after that, all items re reached consensus. So we're so thrilled that these disease definitions are now available for use. And even beyond that, I think another major success of the project was bringing together this group of experts to really start a conversation about how to continue to move the field forward. Thank you, Leanne, for detailing that process for us. And I'm sure that um, researchers and clinicians around the country and around the world are really going to benefit from this. Um, Carrie, can you share about other um, kind of projects that are ongoing in the space? So it is so good to see this in front in Jitsi. And we're just so thankful for all the participants as well as Project Datasphere for their support and for bringing the key stakeholders together for the definitions process. And then they're also supporting a registry which will use these definitions to collate cases. 
the key to usability, that was an essential aspect of the Delphi process to ensure that the group felt the criteria had high usability. So two possible ways we think this could be used in the immediate future would be as a guide or a framework for registries or even publishing other case series or real world data. Currently, there's no standard in the neurological IREE case reports and small series that are published. But by using these consensus criteria, the field now has a framework to pull these cases together and look at real-world outcomes, knowing that the phenotypes are similar going into the analysis. In addition, as we start to see more combination immune checkpoint inhibitor and chemo being used, or immune checkpoint inhibitor and targeted therapy being studied, it'll be important to truly have a sense of what is immune-mediated neurological IRAE. And this now offers a framework that could be used in clinical trials for adjudication, for example, by a centralized data safety monitoring board to classify neurological immune-related adverse events in a more rigorous way. Thanks, Carrie. I can really see the utility of using this framework and, and these guidelines. Um, for clinicians and researchers, Leanne, um, can you tell us how this classifications will be helpful? Sure. I think one way that this classification can be helpful for clinicians in particular is in guiding the diagnostic workup, even before a patient ends up in a neurologist's office. In the paper, we've outlined which tests are relevant for each neurologic syndrome, as well as assigned levels of priority and explained our rationale for including each test. So we hope that this information will be empowering to oncologists to begin the workup, as these providers are often the first to see patients with these complex presentations. Well, that's wonderful, Leanne. Um, Amanda, what are your thoughts on how this can be most helpful to clinicians and researchers? Absolutely. I think that to be able to generate better data on outcomes, study pathophysiology and biomarkers and pilot trials for targeted therapies, we definitely needed these more precise and uniform definitions of the neuro IRAEs. Really the same idea with studying retreatment. And retreatment will be one of the first questions we're planning to address with this work, given how important the question is and the current scarcity of data. Wow, this was an excellent and high-yield discussion, and clinicians and researchers in this area are going to take something from this podcast. Thank you for joining me and Tian today for an enlightening discussion. Thank you all. Thank you for having us. This is such an exciting and a new area of medicine. We feel like we have so much to learn about both immune-related adverse events and autoimmune conditions in general by caring for and studying these patients. Thanks so much to all. Such a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate all of your time today, and thanks so much to the MGH group for joining us today. For our audience, please remember to tune in again soon. You can reach us at checkpointnowpodcast at gmail.com, and please remember to follow us on Twitter at checkpointnowmd. MD.